Um, guys, today we're going to be in Luke chapter 12, uh, verses 35 through the end of the chapter. And uh, today is, I think, another example of why uh, we value and why we should value and practice expository preaching here at GBC. Because um, if I was picking just the parts of the Bible that I personally would want to preach, and I think if, if we were even collectively as a church, uh, we, we probably wouldn't pick this passage, if we're being really honest. I mean, it doesn't really fit our normal comfort zones. It doesn't fit our normal perception even of how we most commonly think of Jesus and his mission and what he's come to do. Um, but I think as a church, uh, you guys, we really do, right? We want, we want the whole Jesus, right? We don't just want the parts of Jesus that we like. Um, but even more than this passage showing us the whole Jesus and giving us other sides of him that really we, we often neglect, um, this passage really does show us a lot uh, what our future holds and how we should live in the present in light of that. Um, there, there is real power, isn't there, uh, in our lives when we are able to kind of press fast forward and see things from the vantage point of the future. Right, we know this, don't we? Uh, probably most famously and most familiar uh, to you would be the Christmas tale written by Charles Dickens, A Christmas Carol. Right? In, the, in that famous uh, story, Scrooge, who's a very selfish man, he's very stingy, he gets visited by three ghosts uh, on Christmas Eve. He's visited by the ghost of Christmas past, present, and future. And it's really the ghost of Christmas future that rattles him uh, because he's confronted with the impact of his selfishness and, and he, he gets to see kind of how people regarded him and how almost no one is basically moved by his death. And this sort of transforms him, doesn't it, into this whole new person. He's like a very generous sort of person. And, and this story's been out for 180 years. You're very familiar with it. Um, I apologize if I've spoiled anything for you, but you've had 180 years, right, to uh, read it. Um, but, but, but think about it a different way, too. I mean, how many of us saw the gripping documentary Free Solo? You know, that guy who, who free climbs without any ropes or harnesses. If you saw that documentary, I remember him watching him climb this, this huge mountain in Yosemite uh, without any sort of protective equipment. And I had to press pause in that documentary and look up, is this person still alive, right? And as I did that, I was able to go back and watch the film knowing that everything was going to be okay. Pressing fast forward and pressing pause, it was super helpful, Guys, when we fast forward to the end of our days, right, we see that Jesus is going to return. He is going to come back. He died, he rose from the dead, he ascended, and he promised us that he would. And some groups since that promise have lived very frantic lives. They've lived trying to predict when this would happen. Right? And they've tried to predict, and they've, we've even seen people say, he's going to come back on this such and such a date, and he didn't come back. And people have looked very foolish. Some people have lived very frantically. And I think because we've looked around at the vast majority of Christians uh, in different pockets of that Christian faith, because some of us look and we see people living foolishly or frantically, it causes a lot of us to practically live as if he's not going to return. But did you know that the second coming of Christ is the most talked about doctrine in the Bible? That's a really big statement, but it's actually true. I mean, there's 260 chapters in the New Testament alone, and there are 318 references to it. That means that 
One out of roughly every dozen verses in the New Testament talks about Jesus coming again. And for every one prophecy concerning Jesus' first coming at Christmas that we have a holiday about, right? For every one of those prophecies, there are eight that talk about his second coming. And so once again here in Luke chapter 12, Jesus is gathering the crowd, he's gathering his disciples, and he's pressing fast forward for a moment to cause us to think about our present lives from the vantage point of the end and how we should live differently. And this is the big idea of what we're going to see in our passage. The big idea of what Jesus is trying to get across to us is that this, that it is only by thinking clearly about the future that you will live wisely in the present. It is only when you and I think clearly about the future that we will live wisely in the present. And so turn with me, if you haven't yet, to Luke 12. Open those Bibles. Have them out in front of you as we follow along. I'm just going to read as we go throughout. But we're going to see five things. Yes, five things in this passage that show us how we should live and wait for Jesus' return. We should live ready. And the first thing we see is that we should wait expectantly. We should wait expectantly. The second thing we're going to see is that we should work diligently. Then we see that Jesus wants us to understand his mission clearly and what that means for our lives. We should watch discerningly and we need to settle urgently. Let's work through this. We'll look first at waiting expectantly, beginning in verses 35 through 40. Read with me here. Jesus says, stay dressed for action, keep your lamps burning, and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So context here, Jesus is speaking to a large crowd. This huge crowd involves his followers and other people that don't know him. And he's giving them a picture of a life that God actually desires us to live. And this isn't a life that we're supposed to live in order that we would be accepted into his kingdom. No, this is a life that Jesus calls us to live once we've been accepted as citizens in his kingdom, okay? We saw last week that God gives his kingdom to those who earnestly seek it, that God generously gives it. He loves to give you the kingdom. And now he's laying out that kingdom life in many ways. Uh, And first of all here, we we are told to wait expectantly. And one of the strategies that Jesus is using to communicate this is by telling us a a different series of parables. Now, if you don't know, parables aren't true stories, but they are telling something true. They're, they're, They're not true stories, but they're telling you something that's true. We've already seen a bunch of these already, the parable of the sower, right? The sower goes out in the field, casts seed. We, we've seen the Good Samaritan, right? We saw last week the parable of the rich fool, right? These stories didn't actually happen, but they're telling you stuff that's true about your real life and how we're to live, right? And so he's giving these different images here, and there's four of them. The first one is he wants, the first image he's, he's giving us is to stay dressed for action. 
That's the first image he uses, to stay dressed for action. This is the idea of being ready, like at the drop of a hat, like in an ongoing, constant readiness to act. Uh, the Greek actually says to keep your loins girded, right? So if you want to look more into that, go for it, right? Keep your loins girded. But basically it's saying don't live with a posture of leisureliness, but stay in fight mode. That's what it's saying. Um, bedtime can always be a little stressful uh, at our house. Maybe it's more so for me, but just kind of feels like a lot of work, you know, to get everybody in bed and that sort of thing. And so there are a lot of nights where maybe we're able to be home together for a few hours before bedtime. And maybe it's an hour and a half before bed and I'll say, hey, how about everybody goes and gets their pajamas on? And inevitably my kids say, well, it's not bedtime for another hour and a half, but I'm saying get dressed for action, right? Like be ready for bedtime, right? So that when it comes, I'm saying get in bed and you're ready, right? You're ready for bed. It's basically that idea. Be dressed so that you're ready, That's the image. That's what Jesus means by this. The second image is in verse 35, and what does he say? Keep your lamps burning. Keep your lamps burning. I don't know the last time you burned a lamp was, but this is what Jesus wants us to do. In those days, when a rich man went to a wedding, and that's the story that Jesus begins to tell in 36 and following, when a rich man went to a wedding, none of the servants knew how long that man would be gone for, how long their master would be gone for. That's because in those days, you didn't know how exactly long a wedding would be. And you didn't know until you got there, right? This this event, this wedding event could last a day. It could last several days, right? And because they didn't have cell phones, right? They didn't have any way to tell people, hey, I'm on my way home. The servants just had to keep the house ready at all times. Because the master didn't want to return to a dark and cold house with all of his servants asleep in their pajamas, right? You should, you should live like that, Jesus says. Be ready to welcome me whenever I come. Right? There's not a text that you'll get, right? Keep your lamps burning. Be ready for me to return at any hour. Verse 37 then says that these people who are doing that, they will be blessed. They'll be blessed. But the master is going to reverse the roles. Do you see this? The master at that point to the blessed servants, he will serve the servants. This is not normal in any culture, not even ours. Right? The servant always serves the master. Right? The, the master reclines at the table. That, that's what we expect. But no, here, the master serves. He says, let me serve you. Right? This is a different kind of master, isn't it? That's a unique master. Jesus wants you to know that he's the master. And maybe you're, you're new and you're exploring Christianity. I'm really glad, whether you're joining us online or here tonight, I'm glad you've risked your time to be here with us. I hope to, you keep coming. But I want you to see the uniqueness of Jesus right here. He, he's a king who stoops to serve sinners. We see later in the Gospels, he stoops to serve even traitors. This is the very center of Christianity. It's not about what we would do for Jesus. It's what he has done for us. And we get just another glimpse of that right here. Jesus serves. And he calls those who are waiting for him blessed. And this is foreshadowing this great banquet that will happen one day where Jesus will serve again. And until that day, we are to wait expectantly with our lamps burning. Right? Third image we get here is that we are to watch out like you would for a thief, right? Like watching out for a thief. Now, thieves, 
We see this in verse 39. Thieves, as a general rule, they don't schedule their break-ins, right? I think you know this, even if you haven't been robbed, right? You don't get notifications again on your phone that says, hey, thief is on its way. You should probably get home, okay? No thief is kind enough to stop by your house and say, hey, at 11 o'clock tonight, I'm going to come on by and I'm going to take some of your stuff, right? I mean, only Macaulay Culkin knows when thieves are coming, right? And he arms up and he's ready, okay? Just realize I have two Christmas things tonight. Sorry about that, but feeling it tonight, okay? Uh, Their goal of a thief, right, is what? It's to surprise you, isn't it? That's the goal of a thief. So if you know a thief is coming sometime in the night, you're going to play it smart, right? And you'll stay up all night and you're going to be ready for him, right? Same thing with Jesus. That's what he's saying. The point is, of course, not that Jesus is some sinister, ruinous villain that's coming to take your stuff. No, but he's, he's saying that he's going to come at a time that you do not expect and we need to be waiting, we need to be waiting. Okay, so are you waiting expectantly? That's what question Jesus wants you to be thinking about. Too. Are you waiting expectantly? Or are you eager for Jesus' return? Or if you're being really honest, do you love this world to the extent that deep down you actually kind of hope that he doesn't return anytime soon? Because that would ruin what you have going on. We move next to see Jesus tells us to work diligently while we wait. And here's where we get this fourth image. It's this bad or idle steward. Verses 41 through 48. Read with me here. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Now, verse 41, Peter asks this question and he wants to know if Jesus previously is directing this warning to the disciples or to other people? This is a very important question. Luke wants us to address this. Does just becoming a Christian make you prepared? Or is Jesus talking about something more? And notice that Jesus doesn't really answer Peter, but he tells him another parable to help Peter self-diagnose whether he's living ready. He's saying, Peter, this most definitely applies to you. A lot of my so-called followers are going to be caught unprepared, lazy, not actively at work in the tasks of the kingdom, and they're going to face judgment. This is a consistent theme in Luke, you guys, that not everyone who calls Jesus their Lord, or everyone who says they're a follower of Jesus actually is. Followers of Jesus are only those who live ready, right? Who live 
active at the task, who live as if Jesus really is their Lord and he really is returning. As Jesus' followers work, there is this judgment, this discipline, this reward depending on how we respond. And what does Jesus say in verse 43? Blessed, there is one who's rewarded. Blessed is the servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Doing what? Well, verse 42 told you. He sets him over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time. So they're taking care of people that God has entrusted to their care, that are this master's people, giving them food. We might think of of many things here, of, of meeting practical needs and actually just caring for people. But we also might think of spiritual type food, which is often a correlation, isn't it? We see Peter deny Jesus, which Jesus talked about those who deny him in the last uh, sermon we heard last week. We see Peter deny Jesus, but at the end of the gospel accounts, and especially in the gospel of John, Jesus restores Peter. And what does he say? Feed my lambs, feed my lambs, feed my lambs. And we might think of these sorts of things as we look at this blessed servant here. This is the one who is carefully carrying out their work, and God says, well done, I'm going to trust you with more. This is how we want to be found, having worked diligently. Because these servants forget their boss is coming back, what are they doing? What's the the first one doing? They start to abuse the master's stuff for personal use. They throw parties for their friends on his dime. They, They drink his wine. They wear his clothes, even force other servants to tend to their needs. And when the master comes back, he's going to say, these things aren't yours. I didn't give them to you for personal use. In fact, the word Jesus uses for servant in verse 42, which is translated manager, there literally means steward. A steward is not someone who owns the assets, but manages them for somebody else. And that's the picture here. So we see Jesus warn us in this text that that not everyone will be faithful who says, oh, I'm a follower of Jesus. In verse 46, we see that the master returns on the day they don't expect, and he brings a swift and severe punishment. This is a picture of the most severe sort of punishment, right? We could all agree to that. Because of his unfaithfulness, the text tells us that he is cut to pieces, right? This This is communicating something. This person is being placed. He's being moved out with the unfaithful. He's not a Christian, right? I mean, just think about how much uh, value the Bible gives to our bodies. This is graphic language, but it's trying to communicate something really important. I mean, think about your bodies. God cares so much about our bodies and what we do with them. Our bodies matter to God. I mean, even when we become a Christian, we're we're told that our, our bodies become temples of the Holy Spirit. The church, GBC, we're called the body of Christ, and Jesus is the head of that body. So here, this person is dismembered, right? They're punished. They're judged as an unbeliever, although he was acting as an insider. We might think of people like Judas, right? Easy example. Someone acting like an insider that really was put with the unfaithful. Judas can be easy to demonize. I'm haunted often by the words of the Puritan Thomas Goodwin, who wrote, Judas heard all of Christ's sermons. He was there. Hearing's not enough. We might also think of the Jewish religious leaders who had God's word. They they knew to be looking for a Messiah, yet they used their positions often to abuse 
for their own benefits. This man is rejected by the master, so this will be with those who God entrusts with, with leadership, yet these people walk with consistent and ongoing unfaithfulness. Then in verse 47, we see a servant who knows the master's will, but he doesn't act in accordance with that will. He ignores it. The text tells us that this person will be disciplined and receive a severe beating. This would have been in line with with Jewish law. You can read Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 2 and 3 for that. Then in verse 48, we see a servant who deserves a beating, but he does not receive the beating he deserves. He receives a light beating. All right, again, this is not saying that Jesus is coming back with a a switch to spank everybody. That's not what this is communicating, but it is communicating something very serious, that when Jesus returns, even Christians, guys, we will be judged for how we live. Verse 48, he caps it off, right? What is given much to them, much will be required. So the person knows and understands. They've had Jesus' teaching. They know his will. And we will be held accountable for that. Again, Jesus speaking of his disciples here, those who know him, who have his teaching, they'll be held to higher accountability because of what God has entrusted to them through Christ. At the end of the day, the point is clear. We will be held accountable to Jesus at his return. Just think about what will happen then, right? If we think about what we say is our hope, with his return comes the hope of what? Casting off our sinful bodies. That's our great hope, right? Free me from this body of sin. And we will be glorified and purified in the existence, in the presence of God forever. And these texts then are basically exhorting us to live like what we shall become. Do I want to be that? Is that what I'm hoping for? Oh, I live like that, right? The call is for disciples to always seek to work diligently in the kingdom, using whatever responsibilities God entrusts to us, whatever resources, whatever skills, talents, be stewards of that. We are managers, we are stewards. We've been let in on God's will and should steward in the way that Jesus calls us to steward our lives and the lives of others. We get this accountability thing, don't we? We understand how this works. Embarrassingly, I thought of a story this week of when I was in early on in high school. I just got my license. I was just beginning to date this girl. Her name was Megan. I went and picked her up at her house. I was really intimidated by her dad. He met me at the door. He's like, you better take care of my daughter, right? It was a very clear transaction here. Like, this is my daughter. You are a steward of my daughter, okay? It's like, we're going to be fine. I'm just taking her miniature golfing, right? It's going to be great. We're on hole number two at this putt-putt golf course, and I'm being an idiot sophomore high school guy, like not all of you are idiots, I was, but, um, and I was trying to flirt with her, and so I was like just kind of lovingly bumping her because there's a pond over there. I was like, oh no, you're going to get wet, that kind of thing, and when I did that, I bumped her too hard, okay? And there was a huge rock down by her feet, and she tripped over the rock and fell completely into the pond. The last image I had was her staring at me as she fully submerged. It was a deep pond, you guys. Okay? She came up out of the water. There was nothing we could do. It was ov- the date was over. Okay? It was hole number two. I had to embarrassingly drive her back to her house not even 30 minutes ago. I just picked up this girl. Right? And I walk her soaked into her house again. Okay? I bet you that guy wanted to cut me to pieces. I'm not, I'm not joking with you. I bet you he did. Right? And our relationship went downhill from there. Okay? It wasn't a great 
wasn't great, okay? But that, that's, we get this, right? Uh, if we are stewards of something, we, we are accountable for that, right? This, this wasn't my wife, right? This was his daughter. Right? We are called to steward many things. You're, you're probably better at stewarding dates than I am, but, but we're called to steward many things to care for the people God has put around us. Maybe that, just on a practical level, is you're a parent or you're a foster parent. We're called to be faithful with the children God has entrusted to us. If you have leadership or responsibilities or you get to teach a group of people, if you're, if you're a pastor, an elder, a deacon, if you're a Christian, right, there's accountability. Friends, God has given us days. He's given us months, years to live. How are we spending that time? Right? Have you asked yourself why Jesus gave you what he gave you? Are you faithfully investing it? Have you asked yourself, why did you give me what you gave me? What am I doing with that? That's the great question right here. Thirdly, he wants us to understand his mission clearly and and more so the ramifications of it. Verse 49, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two, two against three. They will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. So Jesus is turning here to explain the result of his mission. What are we to make of this? I mean, I don't know if you probably walk into many homes and you, some homes have like letter boards, you know, with sayings up or maybe signs that are painted. I went to one recently that said something like, you never know what you got until it's gone, like toilet paper, for example, you know? So people with all these little like, oh, that's a funny sign, you know, all these signs up their house. Could you imagine walking into someone's house and on their letter board it says, I came not to give peace but division, right? You'd be like, whoa right? Like, what is, where am I? You know, like, it's just not really a thing that you generally want to gravitate towards. This is not often even how we think of Jesus, right? Didn't Jesus come to bring peace? I mean, we don't expect him to say this. Isn't Jesus the Prince of Peace, right? Well, yes, he is, but he came to bring a specific kind of peace. He came to bring peace between God and humanity, between God and you. We are not at peace with God. We, we have this sin and we are not at peace with God. And Jesus has come and through his blood, he makes peace between us and God. If you've called on Jesus to be saved, right? That's what Romans tells you. You are saved. And you have this peace now with God. You've been united to Christ. You have peace. Any other Christian that's called upon Jesus as well, we've all received this new peace, this reconciliation with God. And so now as I have that peace with God, anybody else who calls upon Jesus, uh, we have peace with each other. Right? That's, the, that's the image here. Right? So peace with God and others is definitely the outcome, but not always. This peace, though possible, it's not universally received. Not all want this peace. Not all see this as truly good news. Not all desire to receive Jesus as king. 
And if you claim Jesus as king and others oppose Jesus, that is going to cause division. But the place that Jesus zeroes in on here in this passage is the family. And so I'm sure there, there are many of you, or some of you at least, uh, that experience the truth of Jesus' words here. You're like, oh yeah, I, I've, I've known that. I, I know for many Christians all over the world, this passage resonates deeply with their experience. I, I vividly will never forget the time that a Somali woman who was converted to Christ told me that when she called her mom and told her that she had become a Christian, her mom said, if I ever see you again, I will kill you. At that time, that had been four years. She can't see her mom. She knows what Jesus is talking about here. Within the same house, mother against daughter, son and son against father. This is the most intimate level of division. Now, now to be clear, Jesus isn't saying that we should desire this. He's not saying we should pursue this, but that we shouldn't be surprised by it. We have to expect it. This happens not only in families, but maybe close or lifelong friends, maybe coworkers, neighbors. We, We must be aware that Jesus' message is controversial, and we know this because his message led to his own death. I mean, why would people kill him? Well, people killed Jesus because he's the king. They didn't want to be king. But other people might distance themselves from you. People reject this message of Jesus because it tells us that we are a sinner in need of a savior. I heard a, a beautiful folk song the other day, but, but, the, but the, I, the author uh, wrote, I'm not broken, I'm just unfolding. And it's a beautiful song, but it's not a true song, right? It's a nice sleight of hand, right? Not all beautiful songs are true, right? We are broken. We need someone to fix us. The Bible says we are dead. We need someone to make us alive. So this hope is only for those who can admit it. It's relevant to everyone, but only can be received by the humble. So we either reject Jesus or we receive Jesus. There's not a third way. This naturally then causes division. So so guys, don't be surprised if you face this. Maybe you've experienced this. Maybe people have distanced themselves from you. I'm here to tell you, don't despair. Jesus would say, don't despair. But let's also be careful that we don't unnecessarily contribute to the division. I mean, often we see division not because of the gospel, but because of our own sin, because of our own hypocrisy, because of our own pride. And we cause the division, not the gospel. So I don't want any of this to imply that coming to Jesus gives us some sort of brazen, unloving attitude towards our families. That's not at all what Jesus is saying here. And we must also consider how Jesus has actually lived and how he's responded to those who've opposed him. I mean, I'm going through First Peter with my men's group, and we just came across this example again, and we get to see how Jesus responds to his opposers. And it says this, it says, when his opposers hurled their insults at Jesus, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to his father. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. So as we experience the division, we pray and we live sowing grace. We sow the seeds of the gospel. 
because the spouse or the child who does not know Christ, who there's a division between you and them right now, one day they can still come to know the peace that you have. Are there any strained relationships in your life because you follow Jesus? Well, let's consider how to live well in those relationships. Fourthly, Jesus wants us to watch discerningly. As we live in light of the end, we watch discerningly. Look at verse 54. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? Right? Jesus draws in the crowd, the larger crowd here again, and he talks about something that we all talk about. You talked about it tonight as you talked to everybody, right? He talks about the weather, right? We all talk about the weather and we don't know what to talk about. And he goes, if you saw a cloud rising in the region, you would know that that moisture was coming from the Mediterranean. And that meant rain was coming. You could see that. You could discern it. You would predict it. And it would be, you'd be right and it would be easy. Then he uses the second illustration, verse 55. He points to these southwesterly winds that come from the desert and they bring this scorching heat. And so he goes, hey, you know that when the winds start up, you go, it's going to be a hot one today. Right? You didn't have to be a meteorologist to discern that. Right? It was obvious. It's clear to everyone. But then Jesus critiques them. and He critiques us in verse 56. He says, you can look at the weather and predict it. If you're so good at that, then why can't you discern more important things? Why can't you prepare for those things? Why don't you discern what God is doing in the world around you? How could they not discern how God's plans were unfolding in their midst? How could they have missed all that Jesus was doing? For the Jewish people, they had prepared for generations. They have heard the prophets say, the Messiah is coming. John the Baptist said, he's the one, the Lamb of God, who's come to take away the sins of the world. They've seen Jesus casting out demons, healing people, raising the dead. They've heard his teaching, yet they could not discern who Jesus was. They still wanted more. And Jesus, a couple weeks ago, said, the only sign you're getting is the sign of Jonah, that I will die, that I will go into the belly of the earth, and I will rise again. They denied the obvious evidence before them. In their very midst, God was at work, but they wouldn't acknowledge and believe. And we, too, We too are to discern our times. He's not telling you to try to predict when he's coming back. No one knows that. But he's told us to recognize the Messiah has come to notice the work of God around us and to be ready for him to come back. I mean, we'll see this next week that God's kingdom starts small and it grows and becomes massive. Jesus' kingdom does that. It started with a ragtag group of disciples disciples and it spread all over the world. We have these eyewitnesses accounts of Jesus' death and resurrection. We've seen lives that he's changed even today. And if you ask them, how did you change? What happened? They'd say, it's only Jesus. The church has been going to the nations and spreading the good news. This is what the church has done. And it's what we must do. And we do this while we remember that Jesus will return. We don't know when, so we live ready. So are we discerning the times? Are we discerning around us what God is doing? Or are you missing the clear evidence that Jesus is alive and he is coming? The last thing he wants us to do is to settle urgently. He wants us to settle urgently. Look in verse 57. 
And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you've paid the very last penny. So Jesus calls the crowd here to consider his message and respond to it. And he does so by talking about this civil dispute. Right, this person has been confronted with this humongous legal debt. And so because of this debt, they will be taken before the magistrate. They'll be taken before the judge. And Jesus says, settle with the person you owe the debt to before you're taken to the judge. Because the judge will just throw you in the jail and you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. The call is to settle out of court. To settle now. To settle urgently. Get it done. Don't procrastinate on this debt. What's Jesus' primary point here? Well, the aim is for all of us to consider not the money we owe God, but the debt of sin that we must pay for, the debt that we owe to God. Friends, through our own sinful, willful rebellion, we've created a massive debt against God. An overwhelming debt, a debt so large that we have no capacity in our own to pay it back. So how can we settle? What can we even pay with? Do we pay it back through our own good deeds? I mean, maybe we think if I do enough good, the scales will tip and God will write off my debt. Right? Do we settle our debt through our religious devotion? Do we do enough religious activity? Do we attend church enough, share the gospel enough, serve enough, read the Bible enough, pray enough, even go overseas as a missionary? Will that cause God to write down our debt? Friends, none of us could ever do enough to pay down this debt. It's impossible. We, we are insufficient for this task. You are not wealthy enough. Right? Our only hope would be if someone was rich enough rich enough in righteousness to pay this debt for us. But even more so, not only would they have to be wealthy enough in righteousness, they would have to be willing enough. So who is able and who is willing? you got to have them both. Friends, there's only one who is able and only one who is willing. There's only one. And that's Jesus. I mean, remember, he just said, you see a cloud rising in the west, and you go, a shower is coming. It's going to rain. What did Jesus say in verses 49 through 50? There, there's a rain coming, but it's like a fire rain. It's, he called it a baptism that he had to be baptized with. And he goes, I wish it were already kindled. How great is my distress until it is accomplished. You might be going, well, we already saw Jesus be baptized at right? the Jordan River. What is he talking about? Well, he's referring to his cross. Where he'd be overwhelmed, overwhelmed by enduring the outpouring of God's righteous wrath. Not the wrath that he deserved, but the wrath that we deserved. It would overwhelm Jesus as he willingly went to the cross and he paid it all. He paid the debt in full. You can't improve on it. But we see in this text that he was eager to bring it about, wasn't he? Because this would, why? This would turn this into the source of new life for you. 
For those who are dead in their sins, they'd be transformed into a new life in this world and in the next. Right? This baptism would be horrific, but out of the ashes would rise this beauty that the world has never seen all at the same time. And so now if we come to faith in him, you not only have your debt paid in full, but you become credited with his righteousness. It is the most extravagant exchange that has ever happened in this world. So maybe you're here tonight and you're not a Christian. And you've walked around feeling this need to, to settle this debt, but you're not even sure who with. So you try to go out and you're doing good things. You're even volunteering at nonprofits. You're being generous with your money. You're trying to make things right. There's just something inside of you that you kind of feel like, I'm trying to settle something. I would tell you that that longing in your heart is accurate. It's true, you have a debt, we all do. But your pursuit to pay it yourself, it'll never be enough. And so I invite you to consider Jesus who has paid that debt. It's coming to Jesus and praying and saying, I have this debt, I could never pay it. Would you pay it? Would you forgive me? And Jesus is saying, don't delay, go to him now. If we want to live wisely according to this passage, we don't know when he will return. So we must go to him now. It's not just settle someday, it's settle urgently. It's settle today, that's what he says. And maybe this is the first time you've ever heard something like this. I encourage you, come and talk to me. Grab something that you came with. If you don't know anybody, there's a connect form on our website. You can write in there, I want to talk to somebody about following Jesus. We will lovingly follow up with you. But I, I want us to hear the urgency of Jesus' words tonight because that's what they are. Find forgiveness and freedom in this life and in the one to come. Admit your need of Jesus' great debt payment. Or maybe you're sitting here and you are a Christian and you're, you're especially still, um, we're stuck on that initial parable and we're thinking like, man, what a burden, what a, what a deal to follow Jesus. Like this is terrifying. It just might seem burdensome to you. You're probably not grasping the greatness of the treasure that you have in Jesus. I mean, it makes me think of when I got engaged to my wife and married her out of college. What didn't happen is I didn't walk around after that and going, well, maybe I could have dated that person or maybe I would have married them. I wonder, you know, I didn't walk around doing that. No, I looked at my, my now wife and I said, I gained you. I gained you. I don't think about that other stuff anymore. I mean, is there anything greater to gain than God? He's the God of all the universe. I was lost and he saved me. Linger there. You will never give up more for him than he gave up for you. You'll never go farther for him than he went for you. You'll never suffer more for him than he did for you. Dwell on that. This is no burden. We're to live in light of the future. I'm sorry, I didn't ask you if I could do this, Caleb, but I was thinking this whole week about Caleb and Sandy Brumbelow. And uh, pre-pandemic, you guys had us over to your house for dinner. And it was amazing. It was the first time I'd really talked to Caleb and Sandy and I looked at their life and how they love their kids and all these big, hard, and beautiful 
sacrifices they make. Just their beautiful, wonderful family. It's amazing to see you going off to college, right? But I'll never forget something that Caleb told me. I looked at him, I was like, man, you guys give so much. How beautiful, how wonderful. And I don't remember exactly what you said. But he goes, the way I see it, my life begins now and extends into eternity. I'm not sacrificing anything. And I was like, I, I don't live like that. I, I want to live in light of the future now. There's, there's a whole life to be lived in the presence of God. We want to live well. We want to live ready. And this is my challenge to us, that we would live in a way that only makes sense if Jesus is coming back soon. We want to live in a way that only makes sense to the world and to each other that Jesus is coming back soon because that's what Jesus is calling us into. Only by thinking clearly about the future will we live wisely in the present. Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for your word. It's a difficult word. It's not an easy one. But Lord, we thank you for how your word is always meant to for our growth in godliness, for our salvation. It's for uh, your glory, God. We want all those things. So help us to be humble enough to receive it. Help us to live in light of it. Help us to encourage one another with it. Lord Jesus, we, we're in awe of you. We really are. How you eagerly went to that cross. When you endured what we deserved, you paid our debt and we worship you tonight. I pray that you'd get really big in our hearts this week. Big in our hearts right now. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.